0: Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. In verses 42 to 44, At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him when they came to where he was. They tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of the God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of God for us today. Thank
1: you, Hannah. Grab a seat. So here we have Jesus reading from Isaiah, uh, explaining that it has been fulfilled and declaring the gospel. So here we have the word of God, reading the word of God, declaring The Word of God. I'll just just read that one more time. Here we have the Word of God, reading the Word of God, declaring the Word of God. I just want you to hold that little paradigm in your mind and we're gonna come back to that in about 15 minutes or so. Today's talk is called, Anchored to What? Anchored to what? This part of the series is exploring the word anchored life. So today I want to ask, what are you anchored to? When I say anchor, what are you thinking of? Here's a couple of images of anchors. The first one on your left is probably one that might have come to mind first, which is the idea of an anchor on a ship, anchor on a boat. This mooring point, this weight at the end of a rope that gets thrown over and stops the boat from drifting where it's uh, not wanted to go. Uh, In the middle there, those are some jib anchors or some plasterboard anchors. Uh, Anyone use these? Anyone know what those are? Yeah, a couple of people. The rest of you need to use them because you're probably putting things on the wall all wrong. What happens is when you put a screw into a jib board or into plaster board, um, it just breaks up all the jib around it. So you need to put these anchors, these bigger screw uh, fasteners into the wall first, and then you put your screw into the anchor point. So this, this anchor becomes a mounting point to reinforce where there's going to be weight applied. It, it makes it where there should be a stud, like there is a stud. It reinforces that area so that when you put weight onto that screw or you put a shelf on with something heavy, it doesn't bust up the wall, it doesn't make a big hole, it takes the weight. Uh, Thirdly, the third image there is, you know, rock climbing anchor points. Things to tether to as you climb up a wall, as you scale a rock. It's a stable hook for your, your rope to go through, to be tethered to. So that if you slip, you are secure. So an anchor, just as a little bit of a working definition today, an anchor is a trusted point secured to, which brings stability from movement in an undesired way. It, it stops drift. So for a boat, it stops the boat from just disappearing, and going out with the tide and never coming back. It, it stops the boat from disappearing during a storm. It moors it to a place. Uh, An anchor stops damage, you know, in that jib anchor. It stops the plasterboard from just breaking apart around the screw. It means weight can be applied. Lastly, it stops death. You know, the tethering to a rock face so that while you're climbing it, if you slip, you will then have a a catch point. It stops you from dying. And so the question I want to ask today as we begin this new facet is, so, so what are you anchored to? what are you anchored to? You know, in life, when you find yourself drifting, what do you turn back to as a mooring point? You know, when you're going through something that is causing damage or when the weight of suffering starts to come on, what do you look for as reinforcement? Or when there's death, that has come knocking or destruction is looming in situations around you, what are you tethered to? Not that you may experience death, but you may experience life and safety. You know, what are the things you have, to go back to that little definition, so that when unwanted movement comes in your life, you feel stable and safe? You know, for some, it might be a really constructive argument that you have come to the conclusion of, and you know what you know, and you will not be moved. For some of you, maybe it's typing in and asking Dr. Google for some answers. What's the wise internet sage going to say about this moment? For some of us, it might be the numbing of an addiction that always seems to make the pain go away for a little while at least. You know, maybe it's old sage advice that someone gave you somewhere along the line. Maybe it's quotes from a book. Maybe it's lines from a song. Maybe it's a political party or an ideology. Maybe it's a memory verse. Maybe it's a habit that you keep returning to. Maybe it's community, maybe it's family. Maybe it's just wishing that the thing would go away. And would get back to normal. So what do you anchor to? What do you anchor to when the pressure comes on? This is a very important question. And it's an important question because uh, like it or not, I think we're all a lot more lost at sea at the moment than we would care to admit. In this cultural moment we find ourselves in, whether we can articulate it or not, there seems to be a moment of lostness that we are all experiencing together, corporately. Uh, To explain this, I I just wanna show you a short clip from a recent Laidlaw event that I was at. It's from um, a speaker called Mark Sayers, also also an author, uh, pastor of Red Church in Melbourne. Uh, He came over to New Zealand a few weeks ago and uh, we went to see him speak at Laidlaw. And at this talk, he spoke on something called the gray zone. And so just for a couple of minutes, um, I've just lifted out a clip from uh, Laidlaw's video of that day. So I'm just gonna show you Mark Sayers for a couple of minutes talking about this idea called the gray zone. So here's Mark.
2: So what I realized is one of the questions I had was, okay, what is this phase we're entering into? I had these little ideas that, you know, I could come, uh, you know, coin a new phrase and then all these books would be written, church in the blank term that Mark Sayers came up with, phase, and I would be incredibly (laughs) famous and powerful. But what I realised is we weren't actually entering into a new phase. We were leaving a phase, but the new phase that we're entering into hadn't really come into sight. And there's a term that I heard used to describe the beginnings of the Ukraine conflict, which was called a grey zone. They called a grey zone warfare, or grey zone warfare, where when Russia in 2014 went into Donbass and Crimea, All of a sudden, these weird things happened. There were internet attacks. There was like information warfare. These soldiers with no badges turned up at the front of all these installations. People would try and interview them on the news. They wouldn't answer. They spoke Russian, but they wouldn't say they were Russian soldiers. And this was like, is this war, is this peace? We used this very clear delineation between the two. This was somewhere in between, a grey zone. And I realise this term expresses so much of where we are. That's the era that we've been part of, I think, for the last particular 30 years. Roshan might even look at that, that longer back. <coughs> and the era, we can, see, we can see things like cryptocurrencies, we can see drones, we can see new political forms emerging, but we don't know what's going to stay. It's interesting, you know, you think about, uh, I think it was in 2015, the US Supreme Court decision on gay marriage, and there was this thing like, this is where the world's going. It's this inevitable, progressive thing. What are we, 2022, 2022, and now you've got this other decision in the opposite direction on abortion. Just when you think that the new era is taking form, it changes. So we're in this weird, mucky, muddy, in-between zone. So the passing era was defined by peace, prosperity, predictability, and progress. And this passing era, (coughs) like all... (coughs) Sorry, lingering COVID cough. I haven't got COVID. (laughs) <laughs> but just the effect, if you're if you worried. Um, I'm in that golden point where I, I can't get it for about another week. Um, the passing era created, like many sort of eras like that, it created low resilience, both in our systems and institutions, but also in human beings. And grey zones, which I think we're in now are actually filled with anxiety. There's very few markers that you get lost in them. There's disputed norms and ethical modes. One of the really weird things at the moment is there's about five moral codes running. There's the you do, your co- you code. Then there's the I'm gonna tell you what to do code. There's like a libertarian thing where just do whatever you want and don't let anyone tell you what to do. There's this highly controlled, almost neo-Puritan sort of moralism. There's all these different codes going on. No one knows what to do. There's tremendous fear. People don't actually say what they really believe. So what I realised is, one of the questions I... So that's
1: Mark says. A couple of quotes from what he just said that I just want to pull out and draw your attention to. So these are just straight from that little soundbite there. He said this, we're not really in a new phase, we are leaving a phase, but the new phase we are entering into hasn't fully come into sight. It's a grey zone. Uh, yes, no, does that feel like... There's a few, yeah, okay, there's a few nods, there's a few hands going up, yeah. Uh, the problem is, he says, we don't know what's going to stay. Just when you think the new era is taking form, it changes. We are in this weird, mucky, muddy zone. Grey zones are filled with anxiety because there are very few markers, so you get lost in them. And I think Mark's assessment is incredibly accurate. I've been following Mark for quite a few years now and his various commentary on various things of culture. I think he's switched on and I think he's good at articulating what's going on in the world. This is a mucky and muddy moment. You know, as we straddle these two eras, we are feeling lost, we are feeling unsecure. We've lost so many of our distinguishable markers and everything we've tried to anchor into in culture seems to keep just moving and drifting off or disappearing or failing or yanking itself out of the wall. It's shifting. And so for so many of us, we actually just don't know what's worth anchoring into. We don't know if it's gonna hold. We don't know if it's still gonna be around. We don't even know if it's gonna be here tomorrow. You know, we've joked quite a few times, well, not joked, we've talked very seriously about the fact that as church leadership over the last two and a half years, it felt like you'd make a decision on Monday and by Wednesday, it wasn't the right decision anymore. You'd make a decision one week and three weeks later, that one didn't work anymore. It's just mucky and muddy, isn't it? Still. So again, I ask, what are we be meant to be anchored to? Well, one point that Mark goes on to say, and, and I'm, I'm gonna stop being a Mark Sayers cover band now, and I'm gonna talk uh, a little bit more back from my own script here. But um, one of the things that the gray zone is compared to is the idea in the scriptures of the wilderness. You know, in the wilderness, the people of God were walking in the desert and their old story of slavery in Egypt was being left behind and this new one was ahead of them of a promised land. But it was in the wilderness that they had to learn what it was to really be tethered to God. There was this stripping away of The incorrect behaviors, the incorrect thinking, the incorrect truths of the era of slavery that they'd lived through. There was literally a rewiring of their slave mentality, of what were the markers. There was a renewing of their minds that they were not in Egypt anymore. That they were not valued because of how many bricks they made for Pharaoh. They had to learn true obedience. They had to... Um, receive the leading of God and follow god he was his presence was a, a cloud during the day, and it was a pillar of fire at night. This gift was given to them of god 's laws, these covenants that miraculously were written on stone, the laws of right living of justice and of mercy enacted for a bunch of people who were having to have those old stories rewritten and reformed you know in the wilderness Jesus Went out and battled the devil, rejected lies, rejected temptation. How? Well, he went filled with the Holy Spirit, but also he went armed with scripture. And the repeating phrase in that event is often Jesus saying to the devil, No, for it is written. Insert his argument here. You know, in the wilderness, the early church fathers departed from the corruption of Rome and they went out to re-engage with a devotion to God. They went out to, again, let God's word be rekindled in them. They removed themselves from this gray zone of of, uh, Rome's power, and they took themselves out to become monastic people. They re-tethered their lives to the essentials of the faith. You know, in the wilderness, there is an exposure And that exposure is a gift because in that exposure, we get back to what is most essential and we lean on it. And in these examples above the wilderness that the Israelites walked through, the wilderness that Jesus walked through, the wilderness that the early church walked through, in these examples, we see two things that were essential, a dependence on God's spirit and a dependence on God's word. Spirit and word. You know, in the wilderness, in the gray zone, there is an opportunity here for the church to return to the essentials of the faith, of being people of spirit and word. We just looked at spirit for the last month. We're gonna start looking at word for this next month. There's an old saying. The saying goes like this. The Spirit without the Word, and we blow up. The Word without the Spirit, we dry up. But the Spirit and the Word, and we grow up. It's just, I don't know who to quote that to. I tried to find it. Someone wise said it. I think it's true. We've just finished these four weeks of looking at the Spirit-empowered life. The Spirit is this third person of the Godhead, The presence of God who is with us, free to blow where He may, empowering and indwelling with us. But this old saying here, it says that there's actually a beautiful counterbalance for us to find. There's actually a perfect partner with the Spirit. And it's the Word. The Word that is grounded, tactile, true, secure, faithful. The Word that stands faithful amongst time and amongst history The word that was miraculously inscribed onto tablets of stone. The word that was passed on in tradition amongst the people of God. The word that the psalmist put is sweet like honey on my lips. Or like the psalmist said, a lamp to my feet. The word that was declared by the prophets. The word that was incarnate as Christ. The word that was preached as good news. The word that we can anchor our lives to. And so today, as I said earlier, we are entering into this second facet of our series and we want to explore this abundant vision of Jesus's life. Jesus was a man of the word. And so today, this is just the setup talk. This is like the beginning of the alley-oop. And just for the next couple of weeks, there'll be a couple of slam dunks. I'm just setting this thing up. And so today I wanted to raise and get us thinking about this big question. Firstly, what am I anchored to? What am I anchored to? And secondly, what I just want to do for these last several minutes before we finish, is I want to just suggest that the answer to put on the table should be the word. Now, we're going to deep dive for a couple of weeks ahead, but it will be really helpful for us today just to define what we mean by this. So that's what I just want to take a few more minutes to do. So I want to take you back to the start of our talk today and the text that Hannah shared. From Luke four. Do you remember what was going on? Jesus took the scroll, read the scroll from Isaiah, said it's, come, it's fulfilled before you today. And then just a little bit further on, he was speaking the gospel, sharing the gospel. So the word of God read the word of God, declaring the word of God. So maybe a slightly more helpful way to look at it might be a bit more visual like this. When we say word, We're talking about the word in three types of ways, three kinds of modes. There's the written word, the scripture. There's the living word, Jesus. And there's the spoken word, the declared word, the gospel. So I'm just going to quickly highlight a couple of these now. I'm not going to deep dive. That's what the next couple of weeks are for. But I'm just going to scratch the surface on what each of these is. So firstly, we'll start with the written word, scripture. I mean, it's this, it's, it's, it's the Bible, okay? Who's got one? Who's got one now? Hold it up. No, no phones allowed. Sorry, Graham, sorry. Who's got, I, I just wanna see, who has got a Bible in church? One, two, three, four, five, six. I think we're above the seven. Eight. Oh, guys, yes. Happy little pastor today. Man, okay, now if I include our phones in that, you know, who's got their Bible today? Yeah, like, go, 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 go. <laughs> this, this book, this historical and faithful collection of the scriptures, a unified story from Genesis to Revelation, a story that bears the witness to God and to his people, a story made up of two significant errors, Two significant times. Firstly, the first half, the Old Testament, is the Hebrew Bible, which is made up of three significant parts. You've got the law, which is also known as the Torah. Okay, You've got the writings, which is like the, the, the wisdom literature, like Psalms and Proverbs and so on and so on. And then you've got the, um, the prophets. Okay, So you've got three chunks that make up the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And then after Jesus, we then have this New Testament, the second half. And the New Testament is the Gospels, the four books that talk about the life of Jesus. The Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles, the, 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 the gospel, essentially it's the Gospel of the Church, the, the story of the Church. And then you've got these letters, all these different epistles from Paul and Peter and so on. And then you've got this trippy as ending in Revelation. All right? So you've got all sorts of stuff going on in this book. Uh, Augustine said this, I think it's a great little phrase. The New Testament lies hidden in the Old and the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. Okay, it's a bit of both. We need both of these. We're we're not just a New Testament church here. And we're not just an Old Testament group of people. We are both. We are people that like the the fact that both of these things are talking to each other and holding each other um, faithfully. So when we handle the scriptures, when we handle the scriptures, what are we doing? Well, just a couple of key headings here that I just want to say as we start this journey for a couple of weeks. Firstly, we've got to remind ourselves that we are handling a library of literature but we've got to remember what the big point is. What's the point of this book? Why Why this book? Why is this book so important to be anchored to? Um, well, here's the answer straight out of Scripture. This is it's from the Message Version, but this is 2 Timothy 3.14 through to 17. There's nothing like the written Word of God for showing you the way to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way, through the Word, we are put together and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. Amen. We are handling a library of literature, which is trying to do that. But it's important to remember that we are handling a book of translation. Okay, we're holding a book of translation. You know, Dr. John Walton says this, the Bible was written for us, but not written to us. What he's saying is this, the scriptures are of their time and of their place and of their language. So when we hold the scriptures, an analogy I think is really helpful is this. We're actually holding like a film with the English subtitles on. We're actually actually watching something that was actually originally in a different language and the subtitles have been put on for us. So we're holding the work of translation. Translation, not just of words, but of time, of history, of context, and it gets complex really, really quickly, doesn't it? For those of you who've been reading your Bibles for a while, you know what I mean. It's like, yeah, I've got some big questions. And some of those big questions are probably translation questions, they're context questions. They're like, well, why did the world need that right then like that? Because it's a time and a place and a space that is not Auckland 2022. It's a whole other part of the world, Whole other group of people in a whole other different time. We've got to remember that. The Bible was written for us. It's still really useful. It's still really helpful. It's still a book for us today, but it was not written to us. There's a whole other culture that we have to look through to see it correctly. Lastly, we are handling a library. We're handling a library. You know, have you scrolled through your Netflix lately and it's like you've just got all of these options of genres to choose from? What do we feel like tonight? I mean, this, I don't know for those of you who um, have got to do this with another person, like your husband or wife or your best friend or whatever, but like the worst thing Gab and I ever do in our marriage is try and choose something to watch. Like it takes like 30 minutes sometimes and it usually just ends with me throwing her the remote and saying, you choose, I'm leaving, I'm going to go do something else, okay? Like it's usually how it ends, but it's like, Because there's so much to choose from. Genres, what do you feel like? I feel like a comedy. Well, I don't, you know, like (laughs) I want something dark or whatever. It's just like, what genre do we choose from here? So just like on Netflix, there's comedy or romance or action or whatever. So it is in the scriptures. So it is in this book. This book is a library of genre. And that's where it can get confusing as well. Because sometimes we try and make a certain genre do what it's not trying to do, okay? Because in the Bible, we have all sorts of stuff. We have historical narrative, we have biography, we have wise little sayings, we have poetry. Uh, we have things like these big, large prophetic images, which are loaded with metaphor. We have, um, we have just, just good old fashioned teachings and sayings. We have storytelling. We have literal letters, which have just got some logistics plugged into the end of them. Oh, by the way, so-and-so is coming at the end of the week. You know, make sure you say hello. Like, oh man, just, what do we do with that? You know, like, like, this is in this book. It's complex, eh? I'm going to talk a little bit about that over these next couple of weeks, about how we do this well. So that's the word, all right? That's the first one I wanted to talk about. When we say word, it is written down in scripture. Secondly, it's the living word as Jesus. I love these scriptures. We've heard these before if you've been at Central Vineyard, but let me just take you there again. John chapter one, this beautiful opening to John's gospel. In the beginning the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. This is the word logos. You know, he existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. Skipping to verse 14. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John opens his gospel by saying, who is Christ? Christ was the Word, the Word who was always with God. The Logos. Christ is fully God and fully man, and in his fully Godness, he's the Word, says John. Later on, in Matthew, Jesus is doing his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And during that teaching, there's this little line here. I wonder if you've noticed it. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I came to fulfill it, some translations put, to literally fill it up because it's in me. Uh, St. Athanasius, one of the earliest church fathers to really put the, the work in on this, literally as in like, a, it was a heresy war that was going on at the time in the early church. It's fascinating. We'll talk a little bit about that in a couple of weeks too. But Athanasius uh, wrote a book called On the Incarnation. And here's a couple of quotes from that. He says this, Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger. The fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded and that life might die. The self-revealing of the Word is in every dimension, above in creation, below in the incarnation, in the depth in Hades, in the breadth throughout the world. All things have been filled with the knowledge of God. Hopefully that's getting you thinking a little bit this morning. That as we think about the Word, we are not thinking about something small. We're thinking about something very deep. And it's taken 2,000 years of church history for us to unravel what we've got to today. Lastly, again, I'm just setting this up. We're gonna keep digging into this over the next couple of weeks. Lastly, the word is also the spoken word. Uh, the spoken word is this word here, uh, which means a good announcement, a declaration, a gospel. And it was a word to speak like that of a herald who was bringing good news of the king or good news of Caesar and his accomplishments. This was a Galeon moment, this declaration of a good announcement. And so in Mark chapter one, we have Jesus uh, outlined here as what his, 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 his gospel was. Uh, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. You know, Jesus's UN is this message of the kingdom of God. Jesus's good news was the kingdom is at hand. Jesus' good message was God is in the business of doing something right here, right now. Uh, and then Paul later on in 1 Corinthians. He actually has a couple of spaces of his gospel. We'll talk a bit more about that, but this one just for today. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news that I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I love that. It's like, yeah, test it and see. He goes on to say this. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Here's what he says. Christ died for our sins just as the scriptures said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter, then by the 12, and after that he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. He he validates the story. And and what's going on here in this first part of 1 Corinthians is that Paul's gospel is the good news of Jesus. It's just Jesus. Jesus's life and Jesus's ministry So Jesus' good news was the kingdom. And Paul, one generation later, is like, my good news is that guy. (laughs) It's that guy. It's everything he did It's everything he said. And if you read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, he goes on to just make the case of saying that it's this resurrection work that's taking place in the world. His galleon Paul's galleon is Jesus, the life of Jesus, the work of Jesus. It's the fact that as he goes on for the rest of the chapter, he talks about the fact that it's the resurrection of God bursting into the world and that this is good news because this shows us this kingdom work of God where he's making all things new. And that, that's good news. <laughs> that's good news. God's making all things new. Come on, it's good news. So many of us have been sold a gospel that's not that good. That's a good one though. And so just to be clear, as I set this all up for these next couple of weeks, it's all three of these things. When we say the word as we want to be word anchored, it's all three. It's these three forms of word fulfilling each other. It's that scripture reading at the start, the word of God written, the living word, Christ, the spoken word, his declarations. It's all three of these things, interacting, fulfilling, honoring. It's like a little mini trinity of sorts. And my my little prod for some of us today would be this. You know, if one of those things was presented or isolated that doesn't line up with the other two, I think we can be sure to say we haven't got ourselves the true word. So, I titled today's talk, Anchored to What? I'm landing the plane here. In this wilderness moment of the gray zone that we find ourselves in, we need something stable and something secure to tether to. We need something faithful that's going to take the weight of this moment. And we need the correction and the care of the wisdom that it contains to lead us into paths of life. You know, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 105, just some of the most beautiful words of Psalm. Some of you will know the psalm. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet. It's a light for my path. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet. And a light for my path the psalmist in this poetry is saying that the word is like a guide that in this moment of darkness of uncertainty in this moment of not being able to find the normal metrics and measures the normal things to say i know where i am i need illumination i need help i need revelation the psalmist in that bit of poetry says this. Well, the light is the word of God. The word is what we can anchor to. Actually, no, no, let me tighten that up a little bit. The word is what we must anchor to. Now, as I said, today is just a setup. And for the next couple of weeks, we're gonna just peel back the layers on a few more of those things we started to say today. We're gonna look at that three-dimensional nature to the word. Written, living, and declared. And so next Sunday, Donald, my brother Donald Goodhall, he's gonna be speaking on Christ's vision of the word-anchored life. What do we see in Christ? What did Christ model? What did Christ do? And then over the next couple of weeks after that, we're gonna ask some questions around how we practice that. How do we practice this word-anchored life? Sound good? Sound good. Here too, stand up. Let me bless you and pray for you.